Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Oh, I'm, I'm already feeling old, Wendy. Old? Yeah, you shouldn't be feeling old, Mike. Yeah, You're youthful. I I do. I feel youthful, but instead, it is also the last day of my that I'm forty. Oh my goodness! So I've officially crossed. Uh, I'll be I'll be crossed. You know, because the forty is like, oh, you're forty. You know, it's kind of like it, it's a it's a funny kind of birthday, and it's a round number. Yeah, but now it's, it's just a decade. I'm a, not, tomorrow will be forty one. So I'm a dude in his forties. Well. Sticking with uh, positive thinking. Yes. You've got 42 to look forward to. That's true. And that's my hitchhiker. That's where I understand yeah. life, the universe, and everything will be when I'm 42. So that, Don't okay. forget your towel. Work, working on that. Um, yes. Anyway, you have to really fight to stay positive when it's a very grim uh, weekend. It is dark and gloomy. and Yeah. Yucky, and the marathon's over, so I have nothing to look forward to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's... Anyway... I have lots to look forward to because we're going to celebrate your birthday tonight. That's right. the Sunspot show. And looking forward to that. And the thing is, you know, one of the ways that I really stay positive, even though when I'm feeling old and the weather is crap, uh, is uh, by communicating with our awesome Patreons. Yes. And so uh, we got to thank our patron, John Dreischka in New York. He, he made a little map for us of uh, UFO sightings in Wisconsin with concentrations on the number that happened in each city. Which is really cool to see and also particularly exciting since Madison was one of the top two. Yes. And uh, Madison, 64 sightings since like 1995. So I, th- I believe he took um, this data all came out where you could go in and check this database of UFO sightings from like 1995. And I, I put that in the See You on the Other Side newsletter that goes out every week. And John grabbed some of that data and then made it into a cool map of Wisconsin. And then we're going to have that in the show notes. You can see if you're in the Wisconsin area or looking to visit America's Dairyland. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thanks, John, for doing that. That's pretty cool. I was excited yeah. also to see uh, Waukesha had 17 sightings. And that's something that we talk about on the Waukesha Ghost Tour. Yeah. Some of the specifics of those sightings that were reported. So pretty cool to see them on the map like that. Yeah, I'm looking around too. I see Waukesha. I, did, I wasn't one of those, any of those reports, unfortunately, uh, when I was growing up. Muskego was probably the closest to uh, where I grew up in Big Bend, Wisconsin, uh, that little dump in the southeast corner. And Muskego has six sightings, and I wasn't any one of those either. So if you guys have a Wisconsin UFO sighting, send it in, and we'd love to stick it on this map. Anyway, thanks oh, yeah. again, John. You, that'll be in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 171. But so that's how I stay positive when is thinking about UFOs and our Patreon community and how great they are. And the other way I stay positive is thinking about someone who had to stay positive through most of his life, even when dealing with dark periods oh of depression. Oh my goodness. Long, dark periods. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, is that we saw that this movie was coming out this week. It's Thanksgiving week. So this is when the Oscar bait comes, starts flying out. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Good stuff to look forward to. That's right. So it's usually movies with good performances or the very serious movies come out at the end of the year uh, because, you know, they're fresh in viewers' minds for voting when they vote in January. So that's, that's the whole thing is, is that uh, you put these out at the end. Like if you put something out in February, 
the voters might not remember that the Academy voters. So this is why they throw out the Oscar bait at the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, they want to be in their face so they don't forget. <laughs> up right up in their guts. All in their about. face. And and so uh, this one coming out, actually, I really want to see. It's Darkest Hour Ooh. Uh, with Gary Oldman as uh, Winston Churchill. And okay, first of all, you're like Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. Well, they, I mean, he's pretty much made up. <laughs> Like he's got to be, he's under more makeup than like a Star Trek alien. <laughs> like he probably had to do like it's three a mask. hours. It is. I mean, he had to do like three hours of makeup. Wow. Had to every day to look like Winston Churchill because Gary Oldman is a skinny, dark haired guy. Like he's still like, I'm looking at picture of Gary Oldman right now that they put on Wikipedia, like him at Comic-Con or whatever. And he's still <laughs> like handsome, still full head of hair. I mean, he's not uh, a chubby old guy. And, you know, it is funny when people talk about, um, do you ever hear that, that joke, Wendy, when the, or it's kind of a joke, but people will say like, um, this, you know, one leader was in shape, a vegetarian, went to bed early, a teetotaler who didn't drink, mm-hmm. um, and the other is, was overweight, a chain smoker, uh, someone who drank every night, <laughs> ate way too much. Uh, you know, got zero sleep and was mentally ill. And you'll be like, okay, which one is which? You know, and they'll say Hitler was the vegetarian and Churchill was the guy, overweight guy who Aww. drank all the time. So that's, the, you know, I remember somebody told me that in college. They're like, one leader is, you know, and one leader is this. They're like, who would you rather have? And you're like, well, obviously, <laughs> I would identify with the guy that overate. Probably <laughs> and drank every night and uh, liked to smoke cigars. So like, are well, you, you're saying you're... You're like Winston Churchill, huh? I'm pretty much there's, saying that I am Winston Churchill. There's a little British bulldog in you. <laughs> totally. Anyway, uh, I've always you know, admired. And the, and the thing is, so Churchill <laughs> did come up in 2002 with had a poll of who is the greatest Briton, Briton, like with an mm, O, that ever okay. lived. And so Winston Churchill won that award. I bet he won it hands down. And people, you know, people love him. Uh, some do. Some don't. Well, we can talk about that more later. He was very popular because he helped the British during the Second World War. He was an inspiring figure during a very dark time and his darkest hour, like the movie says. Yeah. And, well, go ahead. That's interesting history. But Mike, what does this have to do with the paranormal? I mean, <laughs> well, well, we'll be getting there. Okay. Uh, All right. I just want to make sure that we don't bore people to death with the history. You're right. You're right. First, first of all, I want to make I want to tell people that you know Gary Oldman is no stranger to trying uh, makeup and stuff like that because if you've ever seen the the movie Tiptoes, Gary Oldman gets com- like computer graphics make him a dwarf. Uh, with with Matthew McConaughey as his, he's he's Matthew McConaughey's twin, and Gary Oldman they turn him into a dwarf with computer generated graphics. Uh, Peter Dinklage is in it uh, as his best friend. And the thing is, it's one of those movies that's really ridiculous because it's another one of those Oscar bait kind of things. But it just it shows how brave Gary Oldman is. And especially if you watch the trailer, all you have to do is watch the trailer of it. And it looks like a parody from Tropic Thunder kind of thing. Uh, So Gary Oldman isn't afraid of going all the way. Okay. So I appreciate that about him. And so he goes all the way in this role as Winston Churchill with the makeup and everything. And everybody says it's great. He's the tip to be cool. the best actor at the Academy Awards. Wow. That's impressive. So maybe maybe he'll do it. Yeah. Now, if if you guys don't know who Sir the right honorable Sir Winston Churchill is, as his Wikipedia page says. <laughs> he was born in 1874. He was born into an aristocratic family. 
So he was already up in the high echelons of British society. His dad was a member of parliament. His grandfather was a member of parliament and the Duke of Marlborough. So Winston Churchill was literally the Marlborough man. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I didn't know this before we were doing research. His mother was American, or at least born in America, in a British family. But uh, she was born in America and came back to England to get married. And so maybe that's why he had such an affinity for the Americans. He was, the, he was part of forging that special, they called it the special relationship uh, between the UK and the US. Okay, but we can start getting there. Uh, Winston Churchill joins the British Army. He serves in a, a variety of battles in India, in Sudan, in uh, South Africa. And then he becomes Home Secretary during the First World War and then eventually becomes uh, the Prime Minister during the Second World War. And you know that's where... He was so inspiring to people during the Blitz and everything. And we'll get there. Uh, So what does this have to do with the paranormal? Please tell me. Well, okay. First, I see the movie's coming, and I'm like, okay, well, we should talk about Winston Churchill because he's an interesting character. And I wonder if there's any kind of ghost stories or anything associated with Winston Churchill. Okay. And that that was the mother load. All right. Now we're talking. So there is a lot of uh, Churchill paranormal stories out there and it might be just because there's so much on world war ii okay you know that everybody's always looking for an angle but he definitely knew about spiritualism he knew about uh, paranormal he reported his own ghost stories and let's get in there right now like like first of all mentioned before when you're talking the hitler versus churchill joke um that churchill was quote-unquote mentally ill Mm. well he suffered from manic depression Okay. I mean, very famously suffered from, he he would write about it. In fact, he would call it his black dog. Wow. As did another um, British writer in the 18th century named Samuel Johnson. But interesting is that he used the terminology of the black dog. And we all, you know, when I think of black dog, the first I think is Led Zeppelin, you know? Yeah. (laughs) There's the black dog. But the thing is, is that uh, the black dog is, especially in British uh, mythology, it's like a bearer of bad news. Like if you saw the, the, the demonic black dog, uh, you were going to die. Foreshadowing. Yeah. And, and, and it's just, even the Hound of the Baskervilles is inspired by the legend of the black dogs on the moors. Ah, okay. So the thing is, he uses that terminology and of, of this demon dog, you know, <laughs> following him around. And when the, you know, his depression comes, it's like he's being cursed by a supernatural entity. And so I just thought it was interesting that he used that particular terminology. So he, he starts with, when it, describing his own depression, where he'd be in bed for weeks, mm. you know, wouldn't want to get, I mean, that's, it really was a crippling depression for him in yeah. a lot of ways. And I mean, part of the thing that makes him inspirational is that he could overcome it, is that, you know, he, he had to deal with it. He was in bed for a long time, didn't want to, you know, get out and everything. And, but the time when he was manic, he sure inspired people and he was able to, you know, save the country. Yes. And so that was the first thing I thought was interesting when he was describing his own depression. He uses supernatural terms in the way to do it. And the thing is about uh, Winston Churchill is that he gets in the military right away as the aristocrats, like most of their family, like that's how they kind of would prove themselves by serving, you know? And so we talk about now that... Most of the people who serve, like in the American military now, like if you have a rich, like you, it's, it's hard to say that most people with like wealthy or well-off parents don't usually serve in the military, at least this kind of thing now. Um, but back then, it wasn't just the, 
the poor who served in the military, like the, the kind of aristocrats had to do it to kind of prove themselves. He joins, he serves in what's called the Boer War. Have you ever heard about the Boer War? It sounds familiar and it has that ring to it. You know? <laughs> it does have that ring to it. It's like the Boer War. Okay, what were the Boers? So the Boers were- <laughs> A bunch the... of really dull people. <laughs> yeah, the Boer, the Boer War. Um, no, so the Boers, that's, those are the, Dutch, the descendants of the Dutch settlers in South Africa. Ah. So when we talk about colonialism, and this is, this is one of the reasons that some people don't like Winston Churchill, because he was one of those old school British Empire kind of guys. Mm-hmm. So as inspiring as he could be in the face of danger, he also was one of those, the sun never sets on the British Empire kind <laughs> of guys. And so he uh, was very fiercely protective of the British colonies in India. And they also had a colony in South Africa. So so the Dutch settlers came in. There were British settlers as well. And then the British eventually kind of took over South Africa. And the Boers fought for their independence against the British. I mean, I'm I'm probably taking a very complicated situation. Uh, I just want to give you some back. And and you're making it very simple. Yeah, yeah. Distill it. But Dutch settlers against the British, the Boer War. So he's captured by these uh, Boers, the Dutch settlers, in Pretoria, South Africa. He gets captured in the 1890s when he's fighting there. So he finds a way to escape, jumps on a train, is on the train, and then he jumps off the train because he's like, okay, they know I'm on this train. He jumped, right, so it's like an action hero. It's like like Sir Winnie Churchill, the (laughs) action hero. And so he does it. He gets on a train, jumps off, and then he goes for help. And so he's finding, looking for sanctuary anywhere he can go. And he writes about this in his autobiography. He says that he feels like he was guided by a form of mental planchette. Oh my goodness. I like okay. that description. That's so, cool. So, so what's a planchette, Wendy? It's the tool that you use in conjunction with a Ouija board. And it's the little sort of teardrop shaped slider that uh, has a little window on it. And it goes over the letters and the words to answer your questions. That's exactly right. And that's the thing. So that's what he, he says that he's guided somewhere and he comes to a house and the person says to him, you are so lucky that you came to this house because it was the only house sympathetic to the British cause within a 30 mile mile radius. He had help from another realm. And that's what he writes about in his autobiography, that he was guided psychically. Incredible. Yeah, and, and, and that's, you know, as a young man, you know, that's a story that he retells himself, which is interesting because you don't think of Churchill as a very, you don't think of him as a spiritual guy. You don't think of him as a religious guy, but he says that there was an invisible hand, you know, that this mental planchette. And the fact that he knows what a planchette is. Right. He's comfortable with spiritual terms. Yeah. You know, when you're looking stuff up on him being psychic, there, there's some people saying that he predicted the atomic bomb in the 1920s. Um, let me see if I can find it, uh, right here. So he's talking about, um, missiles and bombs and things in 1925. And he goes, may there not be methods of using explosive energy more intense than anything yet discovered. Might not a bomb no bigger than an orange be found to possess a secret power to concentrate the force of a thousand tons of cordite, which is a old explosive. Could not explosives be guided automatically in flying machines by wireless or other rays without a human pilot? Now, I don't know if he's being psychic or just sees the fact that bombs are going to get smaller. You know, uh, maybe he, I mean, they don't have computers back then, but they have machines and automation and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, somebody said that was an example of a psychic power that he predicted the atomic bomb. But, you know, 
I, I still think it's cool. He's just thinking about the future. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a vision. He was a prolific writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in like 1953 for like his body of work over time. Wow. So, I mean, he would written a ton of books. He was a journalist in one of the wars that he went to, I believe was in India. Uh, he was a journalist for a time. Like he would write uh, articles for back home. So he's, an, so he's a writer. He's a army. He's a statesman. He's one of those. He's, he's a renaissance man. <laughs> Indeed, you very know? much so. He is a renaissance man. And so when people, a lot of people think about him, they think that he's the guy who's predicting that Hitler is going to be this monster that he eventually became. And he's the one who's shouting for, hey, we got to watch out for this Hitler guy. Hey, everybody, Hitler. Hey, don't forget Hitler. Keep an eye on this one. <laughs> right. You better watch out for <clears throat> Hitler, everybody. And that's the thing. They really do that. You ever see the movie, The King's Speech? I actually haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry to report. I know it's the one that's on the list, but it keeps getting knocked down. Yeah. No, it's it's a really good movie. Yeah, won a lot of awards. Yeah, and they've got uh, like Guy Pierce, um, he, the guy from Memento. He plays the British king that married the American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Like yeah. so he's king Edward the Seventh or Eighth or whatever, and he's got to abdicate because he married an American. He was so in love with her. He marries her. And then the British wouldn't stand for an American being their queen or, you know, being married to the king. Right. So he had to abdicate and then was taken over by his brother, George, who is the mother of Queen Elizabeth, who's been the second, who's been like on the throne for a thousand years. I mean, she's got her own thousand year reign. Like she's been around forever. Um, anyway, but the reason I'm talking about that too is because in that movie, they really portray him as that, you know, watch out for Hitler. Hey guys, don't forget about Hitler. And the funny thing is, the guy that Guy Pierce plays, the king who abdicated, he always had positive things to say about Hitler. Like, Whoa, not that they hung out. Who does yeah, that? that? They, right. But not that they hung out, but he was like, you know, Hitler's not that bad of He's a guy. He's all right. He just, he just well, gets in a mood sometimes, you know? <laughs> right. He's, you know, don't worry. You know, oh, the, the camps, don't worry about it. They're nice. No, it, but he wasn't necessarily a supporter, but he always had positive things to say about Hitler. And then you find out during the, during the war that one of the things that Churchill found out about and suppressed was that uh, the Germans had a plan to reinstate Edward, the guy who was sympathetic to the Nazis, as king if they could defeat England. So the idea was once all the bombs and the blitz and everything is done and they've gotten England under their control, they'll reinstate Edward as king. Ah, man. And so... Churchill was suppressing that information too because he didn't want it to get out that the the Germans were trying to, um, number one, that Edward was a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, Joseph Kennedy, I mean, uh, he also was a Nazi sympathizer. And that's, we talked yeah. about that in the Kennedy, Kennedy curse episode um, last year. Oh my God, that was like last it year. It was. But eventually Winston Churchill becomes the prime minister of England. Like once Neville Chamberlain, he tries all this stuff. He tries to appease Hitler. He's like, okay, you invaded Czechoslovakia. Fine. All right. You're going to take a little bit of, you know, Poland. Fine. You know, Poland is when they're like, oh no, we can't, you can't take Poland. And so, but Chamberlain tries to appease and eventually the British are like, enough of you. Let's put in the guy that hates Hitler and they bring in Winston Churchill. And so Churchill is trying to get the U.S. involved in the war with his buddy, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, here's the thing. He comes over and he stays at the White House. And he, you know, he travels across the Atlantic several times and he stays at the White House. And what does he see when he's staying at the White House? Oh, what? But the, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. Yes. 
Yeah. So he's staying over at the White House, and he'd like to smoke a cigar. He'd like to drink scotch. He'd like to take a hot bath at night. Sounds relaxing. Yeah, so he liked to relax at night. And actually, what I read, what he used to do, is he would take the end of his cigar that he put in his mouth, and he'd put it in his drink. Because that part can be wet. Not the, not the ash part, but you put the part you put he in your mouth. He drank it? Well, you, it's, it's like he'd dip the... Um, he, it's already in his mouth, and he'd yeah. dip a little bit of the cigar. Not, I mean, just the part that you put in your mouth. Just to add the, flavor to his drink? To add flavor to his cigar. Oh, okay, I gotcha. I was thinking okay. the other way around. He was using it like a swizzle stick or something. No, no, he would just he would just dip it in to, okay. get, to get some flavor of his port wine. He likes I to drink see. port, which is the thing is, if you weren't overweight and you drank a lot of port, like port's heavy, you would stuff. become overweight. Right, you become you just get drunk too easy, yeah. and you don't want this guy making decisions when he's all wasted. No, and I realized I should have done. Uh, I don't have a good Churchill voice. Otherwise, I would have done that whole quote before in a Churchill oh voice. My, I don't have a good Sean church. Connery. I don't have a good Churchill. I, I, no, it's it's too much like Sean Connery. That's I just don't have a Churchill voice. And you know, he, he had that uh, just yeah. kind of way he talked, which is obviously so uh, so distinctive, such an orator. In fact, when people go into sometimes there's a statue of him in the, like the the Parliament building, and when they go in, they'll rub his feet for good luck to help them talk. You know more uh, forcefully and to be a more convincing order mm, okay. when they're going to address Parliament. Anyway, so he's taking his bath. <laughs> so Winston Churchill. So that, so everybody, put this in your head. Winston Churchill. Buck oh naked wow! In the Thanks for that. Drinking a scotch, smoking a cigar. Maybe there's bubbles. <laughs> I don't know if they had. Bubbles. I bet they did because this is luxury, right? This is in the White House. They're going to take care of people. Right. So Churchill's obviously obviously. So he climbs out of the bath, and the only thing he's wearing is a cigar. Oh. He go, he go, well, I'm just, I'm just saying it. I mean, how it happened. He walks into the bedroom, and then he sees Lincoln standing by the fireplace in the room, leaning on the mantel. Cool. And what he said happened was that uh, he looks at Abe, he takes the cigar out of his mouth, taps the ash off the end, and goes, Good evening, Mr. President. You seem to have me at a disadvantage. And then Lincoln, the ghost of Lincoln laughs and disappears. That's kind of cool. Very odd. Yeah. Interesting uh, way to react to a ghost. Right. Crack, cracking like jokes. Just like, <laughs> okay. And so, I mean, that's the idea. I mean, that's the legend. Yeah, that's that's the, cute. You know, he said, I saw Lincoln's ghost and Lincoln's ghost caught me. And I like that Lincoln laughed too. That's right. That Lincoln was, I mean, because he's also someone that fought with depression himself. Mm-hmm. Lincoln had his own black dog. Yeah. And that idea that... Uh, Anyway, they met. That's pretty awesome. When he was overstaying. Um, and, I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. And that's, you know, one of the ghost stories. And we'll get to people, actually, the ghost of Winston Churchill and the cigar. Uh, we'll continue that in a little bit when we talk about his transatlantic trips. But I wanted to kind of go in a uh, chronological order because it just shows you how many stories there okay. are. Now, one of the things when people talk about World War II, they say Hitler relied on an astrologer. And so he would pick the times of invasions based on recommendations from an astrologer. Mm, okay. And they, he actually, they said there was supposed to be some kind of land invasion of Britain, but the astrologer told him it was a bad time. And so they just continued bombing instead of doing a land invasion because the astrologer said it was a bad time and then they never got an actual time wow. to do it. And the thing is, if they would have attacked at that time, they totally would have overtaken England. I mean... You ever see bed knobs and broomsticks? A long time ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
But it's not, that was my favorite Disney <laughs> okay. when I was a kid. That's an old one. Yeah. And I like Angela Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> but Bedknobs and Broomsticks has a thing like where the, like the Nazis come over, like the German soldiers are there. Like, and then eventually the, the witchcraft stuff gets rid of the Nazis and stuff. But, but that's part of the fun of the movie. But if they would have done a full invasion of the British Isles, uh, they probably would have overtaken them at wow. this time. But here's the thing. So there's a Swiss astrologer by the name of Carl Ernst Croft. And he starts making some predictions. And he predicts that somebody's going to assassinate Hitler in 1939. He makes that prediction. And then the Nazis think, wait, he got this right. Somebody did try to assassinate Hitler in 1939. We should, like he was probably part of the plot. So then they capture him, this astrologer, and they think that he's innocent of the plot. But once they think he's innocent, they think he's a real deal astrologer. And so they start having him do predictions for the viewer. Well, uh, of course, Churchill hears about that hears that the Nazis have an astrologer who's telling them what to do and he's assisting them. So they have to get their own astrologer. And they do. Um, they pick a guy named Louis Duvall who was born in Germany, but then he escaped to London uh, from Germany because he was partly Jewish. So he leaves Germany in the 1930s because he knows, he sees the writing on the wall. He sees the swastika on the wall. It's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he does it right. Gets the hell out of Germany, goes to London, but what happens is he's an astrologer who's just writing horoscopes to the local paper. And it's not that he's necessarily a good astrologer or someone that's psychic or anything, but they use him as like counter propaganda. So they use him to start printing predictions that the allies are going to win. Uh, the Germans, you know, are going to get defeated. He starts writing all these astrological horoscopes that are in favor of the Allies, that they're going to be completely routing the Germans and that the war is going to be over soon and all these kind of things. And they use it as propaganda. They take these pamphlets that he wrote with these horoscopes that says, like, it's going to suck to be a German or this wow. is a bad sign. And they throw it over, um, they throw it over German-occupied oh, territories. Okay. They throw it over France. They throw it over parts of Germany, all these places, wherever they could get their, their planes over. And so uh, Vol becomes basically the Allies' astrologer, just like Kraft was the Germans' astrologer. So they used astrology as propaganda, as like counterintelligence mm. and stuff like that during... I, what I think is interesting, too, is we've talked about the, this on the show a lot, of people using UFOs and alien technology as propaganda during the Cold War. You know, and I mean, how many people... I, I still kind of believe it. I still kind of believe there's aliens in Area 51. But how many people believe there's aliens in Area 51? A ton yeah. of people believe it. So that idea of, I mean, they started in the Second World War. Like, we're going to use astrology to make the Germans scared because we know that they're using an astrologer for real in their high command. So Churchill had his own astrologer, Louis de Vol, who eventually wrote religious fiction. Wow, in his own. interesting. Uh, he had a, I think he died in America in like the 1960s, so he, had a, he ended up having a decent life. So they're using astrology, but Winston Churchill, however, starts having his own predictions, and they start coming true. But it's more like feelings. So something happens where he's at 10 Downing Street. So they're, they're at 10 Downing Street, which is where the prime minister lives in London, and he's at dinner with a bunch of people, and then he goes to the kitchen, and he goes, why don't you set up the meal instead of setting it up in the dining room? I want you to set it up 
I want you to set it up somewhere else. And I want you to leave. So he tells the kitchen staff to clear out and then to set up the meal somewhere else. He goes back. He resumes the meal. He's having fun, probably smoking, drinking, whatever, hanging out. The air raid occurs. The kitchen takes a direct hit, blows up. If the kitchen staff was still there, they'd be dead. So he has a prediction, like right in the middle of the right in the middle of the night, that there's going to be that. A little while later, he decides to enter his limousine on the opposite side, and he can't say why. He's like, "Oh, I'm going to go in this way today." It's that gut instinct again. Right. He has a gut instinct to go in the limo from the other side. A bomb strikes the vehicle on the side he usually sits on, knocks it over. The only reason that he survived was because he entered from the other side. Incredible. Yeah. So he not only has that prediction in the Boer War where he finds this place using his mental planchette, his mental planchette also helps him during the Second World War save his kitchen staff's life. Right. And avoid a strange bombing that happened. So now the thing is, during the Second World War, he also gets linked some different people uh, like Alistair Crowley and Dennis Wheatley, who also was a, a cult writer, and then Ian Fleming, the writer of James Bond. And, you know, it's said that they had a, uh, like a, a seance and like, they would do secret occult rituals to try to take down Hitler during the Second World War, and Churchill knew about that. And that sounds like something Alistair Crowley might have done. And there also was even a book about how Alistair Crowley worked for British intelligence during the Second World War. That's not something that the (laughs) the government has acknowledged and say. And Churchill, of course, might have known about it, but I don't know that he was actually involved in it, even if they did. But there was something he did know about that. Now, some people said that he visited this psychic medium during the Second World War for advice, but I can't find anything about that. They, They wrote a book on her called Churchill's Witch. Okay. Uh, Psychic medium, which, you know, same thing. Right. (laughs) I do know that he knew about her, though. Her name was Helen Duncan. And so she's a medium in the, like the John Edwards, uh, Mm, Dennis Von Prague sense in the... In the early 20th century, uh, she's a medium. She's born in Edinburgh. I'm sorry. She wasn't born in Edinburgh, but she lived in Edinburgh. And so she's a Scottish medium. And she does the whole thing where she takes pictures of ectoplasm and she's got stuff coming Ew. out of her nose. And people say that they, they see uh, faces of their relatives while they're in a session with her. And so she becomes a practicing medium in Scotland, and she's fairly famous Mm. in the 1920s doing these kinds of, you know, she'd have people over. And remember, spiritualism is huge after the First World War because so many Britons had died in the first, I mean, so many people in general, but especially, I mean, English, French, Germans, you know, obviously they all, so many people died that people wanted to talk to their dead relatives. And so she does these seances and they start, you know, scientists, early parapsychologists, they want to investigate her. You know, so in 1931, um, the London Spiritualist Alliance like did a special investigation of her method, but they found that her ectoplasm was actually made of cheesecloth, oh, paper no. and like, with a white of egg, and like toilet paper, and she'd like swallow some and then barf it during her during the seance, and. Also, like their pictures cut out of magazines of people's heads and stuff, and she would like have them on a little, like a little, uh, like a puppet or something, and then she'd kind of pop up the head, and that's what people would see because it's all in the dark oh, in these seances. So they'd see like a face, and they would put 
like the put the face of their relative on it. You know, in their head they saw the face of their relative. They wanted to see the face yeah. of their relative so bad. So, and then she's supposed to not necessarily take a lie detector test, but she's supposed to do an X-ray like before a séance. So they're going to X-ray her body before a séance, and they are going to pay her to do it, like in this in this test. But when they are going to do the X-ray, she freaks out. This is in 1931. She freaks out, runs into the street. Um. Her husband's got to go get her, and she has an attack of hysteria. She, like, rips her clothes. I mean, she's ripping her clothes, like, in the street. She's running around. She's clutching at railings, just freaking out. Okay. So what does that kind of look like? She agrees to these tests because she's going to get paid to do them and paid to do these test seances. And then once she actually has to do them, uh. she freaks out. So the thing is, when you read about Helen Duncan on some sites on the internet, they're like, well, Helen Duncan was the real deal psychic medium. And then other sites are like, Helen Duncan was just, you know, taking advantage of people. She was a fake, she was a fake spiritualist medium. The kind of person that uh, Harry Houdini would have outed with her tricks. But what happens is, 1941, she conducts a seance where she says that she's speaking as a sailor from the HMS Barham. Okay. Okay. The thing is, is that the HMS Barham had sunk a couple months before, but they didn't report it because so many, almost a thousand sailors died. But they only told their immediate family. They didn't release it to the news or anything like that because they were trying to cover up the fact that so many sailors had died in this, in this sinking. And so when she comes on and does this seance and says she's speaking as a sailor from the HMS Barham and has like the hat, like has a sailor appear with like the HMS Barham, like it actually said the, not just the initials, but actually said the name of the ship on a hat. And so people saw a sailor's face along with the hat. She said she was Sid, (laughs) you know, that this guy named Sid was speaking through. And there was somebody named Sidney who died on the HMS Barham. And so the idea was she wasn't supposed to know. So how would she ever know that this uh, ship had sunk? Well, what happens is in the crowd at that particular seance, there's somebody from the military and they know about the sinking, but they know that none of the, the public's not supposed to know about the sinking. So that's what starts, you know, freaking people out. And that's what freaks uh, the military out. And they're thinking, what if she's a spy? What if she's yeah, part yeah. of German intelligence? Uh-oh. And she's using this information. Well, what happens is she starts getting into legal trouble. So how are they going to prosecute her? Like, what yeah, where's the evidence? Fraud? Like, oh, they don't know it's fraud. It, I mean, she can always say it's entertainment. She can always say she heard, you know, she says that she heard about it from, you know, this spirit, you know, that yeah. spirit guide and stuff. But what could have happened? Well, she could have heard about it from any number of the people uh, whose family members had died. You know, oh, people would sure. all the Wanting time. to try to contact their missing loved one. Yeah. Right. So the 861. And of course, some of those people, you know, they'd that. be looking for answers since they didn't get the information. It wasn't out there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's torpedoed off the coast of Egypt on the 25th of November, 1941. So we're coming on the uh, 76th anniversary of the sinking of that and the seance happens in january i mean so nobody knows about it and and that's the 
Nobody's knows about it. That's how I talk now. <laughs> Nobody's. How you's doing? All right. I'm from Long Island. No, I. Uh, wow. I'm not even speaking right today. Anyway, so what happens is they think she might be a foreign agent, and they try to figure out a way to get her, you know, into police custody for this. So how do they do it? They do it with the Witchcraft Act, what? 1735. The Witchcraft Act covers fraudulent spiritual activity. And a fraudulent, fraudulent spiritual activity can be tried okay. by a jury. So they put her on trial. She's the last witch to be put on trial wow. in the United Kingdom. And she's put under the witchcraft. So, and so this is from 1735. So we all think about the Salem witch trials happening in the 1690s in the United States. Um, that the witch finder general, Matthew Hopkins or whatever that... Uh, What's his name? Vincent Price played in the movie. That's in the late 1600s in uh, the United Kingdom. And so you think that, you know, when the Puritans left or whatever, people don't think it like that anymore. Okay, did they really try her as a witch? Not really. What they tried to do was they wanted to bring her into custody and they wanted to get her to shut up in case she was a German agent. And they used the Witchcraft Act to do it. So when I first read about it, I was like, oh, they were trying people for a witch during the second world, you know. Yeah. What are they, crazy? Well, that's what Churchill thought too. And he even sent, like he, he even wrote a little letter and he's like, what are you wasting our money and time for? Something, you know, because because it's the people in the intelligence community um, who are prosecuting, who yeah. are trying to, you know, get her. And he's like, what are you wasting your time with this witchcraft stuff for? Well, some people took that as uh, he had, he was visiting her and getting, um, he was getting advice and stuff from Helen Duncan and so that was his defense. He was trying to defend her. He's trying to keep her out of prison by, you know, telling them to lay off. But I couldn't find anything where he really did visit Helen Duncan. So that's, that's just one of those things. And that's the thing about the internet is that when you're looking up stuff, especially stuff that people write down that they remember reading in a book or whatever, people write down something they remember reading in a book and then it's uh, quoted by somebody yeah. else and it's quoted by somebody else. And so you have to keep going back and back and back until you, like, can you right. find the actual yeah. source of the story? And how much has it changed since it originated from that source? <laughs> right. The game of telephone. Right. Well, so what happens is Helen Duncan eventually serves nine months in prison. You know, and she's convicted and she cries out in court, <laughs> I have done nothing. Is there a God? Um... You know, but once she's released in 1945, she has to promise to stop conducting seances. Like, that's part of the conditions. It's like, no more seances for you. And uh, they did repeal the Witchcraft Act in 1951. There was a Fraudulent Mediums Act in 1951. So it's meant to cover people who would take advantage of people by saying they can talk to the dead. Yeah, which is good, I think. Yeah, I I agree, too. And then you get rid of the Witchcraft Act. Yeah. Hang people (laughs) or, you know, burn them at the stake. And they're, you know, they're trying to pardon her like people still run campaigns and petitions and every you know trying to pardon helen duncan for what she did you know but the thing is though she kind of it sounded like she was a fraud and so maybe she shouldn't have served time in prison but she was cheating people by saying that she could talk right. to the dead when she couldn't yeah or you know or at least it I sounds think, like I that yeah. but you know the, the thing is is that when you look at sites on her on the internet like some places have the facts and you're from books of where these parapsychological investigators in the 1920s in the early 1930s, tried to, you know, try, they tried to prove that she was real. They weren't just trying to debunk her. They wanted to see that she was real. Um, but what happens is that they find out she's faking. She freaks out when she's got to show up some evidence. It's kind of like when Yuri Geller. Oh, yeah. The guy that used to bend spoons. He'd go on Johnny Carson. And like that night, he wouldn't be able of to. Of course. Yeah, that one or time. When, 
Right, when James the Amazing Randy, who could be a total jerk mm-hmm. in his own right. I'm not you know, defending his methods because I think he was kind of a bully. But when James the Amazing Randy would confront Yuri Geller and then Yuri Geller couldn't bend the spoon. Like that was a night, oh, it's not, it's not coming to me. Well, it's not coming to you the night when James the Amazing Randy's right next to you and will give you a million dollars. So the Helen Duncan story, it really is interesting, number one, that, you know, she was uh, tried for the Witchcraft Act. But I think the real interesting thing is that she was doing her best to fool people. And what she would, I mean, she's like, well, nobody else knows about the, you know, the HMS Barham. If I do this, then, you know, people are going to think I'm really a psychic. And it's going to really prove what I did because it's not in the public papers yet. So that's kind of what what it sounded like to me. Anyway, Winston Churchill uh, gets himself involved in there because he's like, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? Oh, it's still Sean Connery. God darn it. I just can't do it. So the thing is that that doesn't stop, though, Winston Churchill's stories. 1947, Churchill writes an essay. And, you know, the funny thing is it's called The Dream. So he writes this essay called The Dream. And he talks about how he was copying a portrait of his father. And he was really absorbed in it. And all of a sudden, he sees his father sitting next to him in his old red leather upright armchair. And he starts talking to his dad. And he, you know, he talks to his dad about what happened. Because his dad died long before even the First World War. Of syphilis, too. Which they, they had to tell, they told the kids that he didn't die of syphilis because they didn't want to make oh, their father sound man. bad. And so he didn't find this out till later in life Oof. that his you know, father died of syphilis. But he has a conversation with his father while he's painting the portrait of him. And then his father says to him, of course, you're too old now to think about such things. But when I hear you talk, I really wonder why you didn't go into politics. You might have done a lot to help. You might have even made a name for yourself. And the thing is, is that he talked about the wars and stuff. And I guess he didn't talk about his own involvement in, in the story of the dream. But he writes that story in 1947, and now did he really see the ghost of his father, or is he using it as a metaphor, you know, for what Mm. happened? Because at this time, he's out of office, and he's out of office for a short while. He gets voted out after the war, because as soon as the war ends, um, well, they don't want a wartime prime minister anymore. Like, he's, he's tough, and he's super conservative. He hates socialists, and this is a time when the welfare state, everybody's really excited about, they want to start the National Health Service, they want a, a social safety net, and that's not his thing, and he hates communists. In fact, if you watch any of Oliver Stone's history of the, Oliver Stone's the history of the United States, he basically blames, like, the Cold War all on Winston Churchill. Like, it's Oliver, I mean, Oliver Stone. And it's an interesting, and he does his research and stuff, but he basically blames the entire Cold War on the fact that Winston Churchill did not like socialists. Um, but he's out of power for several years. He gets voted out and he paints and he writes. And he's pretty old in 1947. Remember, he's born wow. in 1874. So he's what, 70? Yeah. He's 73 years old. He gets reelected mm. in the 1950s. So when he's 80 years old, he's the prime minister. Sharp. Yeah, keeps going. But, um, and this is something I thought it was interesting. So it's on his, uh, it's the second time when he's prime minister in the 1950s. And this just came out in 2010. So the war chiefs, and the intelligence chiefs of the UK meet the Minister of Defense, and they start giving Churchill these UFO reports. And they start saying, there's all these UFO sightings are happening. What should we do about it? And Churchill says, don't tell anybody. 
We got to keep it, oh, gotta keep it from, uh, keep it from the public. Otherwise, there's going to be a, a mass panic, and it would shatter people's religious views. Okay, that's probably true. Yeah. So when the Ministry of Defense comes to him in the 1950s, and they say there's real UFO sightings, we can't explain it. They even and looking at this, they even show pictures of things that they'd see, and it looks like a flying saucer with different red, green, white lights. You know, the kind yeah. of thing people see a flying saucer. Churchill's like. No, that's exactly <laughs> like no. That. That's about all I can do. <laughs> no, because it would cause a mass panic, and people, you know, might not, be, you know, not believe in church anymore. So he's part of the problem. Of disclosure. So he's the one of the original disclosure guys. So not only, yeah, that's disappointing. That is a little disappointing. But that's just an interesting thing too that he orders a cover up, and they said like him and Eisenhower mm. both agreed that the public would freak out because they were friends from obviously, you know, because Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Allied forces during the Second World War and they worked hard to plan D-Day together. Uh, Churchill and Eisenhower, it was a big deal because they needed to start that second front and they had been begging the U.S. to start, and Russia had been begging both of them to start a second front to take some of the pressure off them for years. They didn't do it until 1944 when they planned D-Day. Now, where did Churchill plan D? Well, it's my understanding that some of the planning occurred in the Queen Mary, the Grey Ghost. Yes. The giant ship that has a ton of other great paranormal stories associated with it. But uh, apparently the room where this planning occurred is now reserved as the Winston Churchill suite. And there's a little... Yes. There's a little placard with his name on it outside of it. And when I was there a few months ago... Of course, had to go and find it, and um, it was locked, so mm-hmm. I didn't get to go in and see if there was actually sand in the bathtub, as is, is storied, um, that they used to plan that out. But, but there were ghost stories and rumors of people smelling cigar smoke around that room, so I didn't see it myself, but I did get a picture of yeah. the door. <laughs> but I think it, it's funny, it goes back to the whole thing of Winston Churchill hanging out in the bathtub smoking a cigar. Yeah, he loved his baths. He loved his bath and he loved his cigars. And there's a story right here on the internet of uh, somebody in 2013 about a a woman and her mother. They go to stay on the Queen Mary and they smell that strange cigar. And they're like, well, it, it must be Churchill. No one was around though. Right. So cigars are pretty yes. smelly. I will give them that as a man that smokes cigars on occasion. And nowadays it's not allowed to smoke inside. So if you smell it inside, usually it's, you know... Right. Somebody's being sneaky somewhere or I don't know what. (laughs) But they talk about the ghost of Winston Churchill uh, around the Churchill suite on the Queen Mary or going for it. Like people will smell a cigar smoke and they think it was the late prime minister going for one of his strolls. Um, But I thought that was fun. Yes. But he used that ship to cross the Atlantic like three times. So he's quite familiar with the ship and, and would have had, you know, a strong tie to it, I would think. That's a lot of time to spend on a ship. Mm-hmm. Well, he probably went over on the Queen Mary when he went over to Washington and saw Lincoln's ghost in the bedroom. There you go. So some of that energy stuck with him, yeah. and now it's still on the Queen Mary. Now, here's something from not too long ago. This is this is just March of last year, actually St. Patrick's Day of last year, March 17th. And this was in the uh, the Mirror, which is really not one of... Uh, England's most reliable newspapers, let's say. Uh, it's it's not quite the weekly news of the world, but it's not the uh, okay. New York Times. So what happens is, is that a, uh, a 23-year-old is going in the underground and 
he's going to take a picture uh, for his sister, uh, just kind of like, oh no, I'm sorry. He's taking a picture for his girlfriend because his girlfriend's never been on the underground. Underground is the subway. The tube. Right, the tube. So he's going to get in the tube. And that's where, you know, like when you're, they have those little signs that say mind the gap. Yes. When you're going, you're getting off to so the mind the gap. And all the tourists buy the t-shirts space. with the mind the gap. That's right. And I've got a mind the gap t-shirt myself somewhere. Yes, you do. Anyway, so he's in the Queenway station. It's around midnight. He's waiting for the train and he says he feels a presence. So he stands up. He, th- he feels like somebody's behind him. He puts his back against the wall. Now, this is a, this is a subway station, remember, and this is at midnight. So if you feel like somebody's behind you, it, it could be... Trouble. It could be a black... It could be a blackguard coming to take your dollars. Oh, I guess your pounds, your farthings, your penny farthings. So what happens is he, he does that, he, and then he sees that weird presence, and then he takes a picture. Now, we'll link to this picture in the show notes, but if you look at it, he says, he says it's a figure of a bald man standing in the underground. And he's like, you know, who, to me, it looks like Winston Churchill. And so, uh, and he's quoted, and so this guy might not be the smartest guy, because he's like, since then, I've heard stories that people have seen the ghost of William Churchill down there. I knew he had a bunker in a tube station nearby, so it could have been him. Yep, good old William Churchill. <laughs> and they do a close-up of the picture, and it does, you can see hands there, kind of. Um, to me, it looks like the light of the flash over it, really. And but you guys can be the judge if it's really the ghost of Winston Churchill or or his brother William, little known, <laughs> but like to hang around the tube. That's right. So uh, that's the last uh, Winston Churchill piece of paranormal I could find. There's also some stuff on how Winston Churchill was part of a uh, conspiracy, uh, and he really was a traitor. But it's so stupid, I don't know if we need to give it the time of day. They tried to compare. Not worth it, huh? No, they tried to compare him giving. So he gives, a, like he'd give the V for victory. You know, he did put the two fingers up is the famous thing. They got, you know, they always put up the V. And they have him putting up actually the Mr. Spock salute. <laughs> awesome. They have a picture of him. They have a picture of him putting up the Mr. Spock salute. And because, you know, Leonard Nimoy yeah. used that as, and that was a rabbinical a hand gesture. Yes. You know, they try to say that it's, you know, it's a symbol of the Illuminati, uh, that is part of the blah, 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 the, the Rothschild Jewish conspiracy, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, looking into it, I'm like, what? Uh, you know, that he was blackmailed about a homosexual affair and he was a zombie. Oh my goodness. And you're like, what? they really go into it. So it, it, it's a stretch. Yeah. It's about the same level as the people that think that Katy Perry is part of the Illuminati. <laughs> Except it's a little more offensive because it's, uh, it's against uh, Jewish peoples. But anyway, Winston Churchill, uh, paranormal life, uh, fascinating guy, obviously a very divisive figure because, I mean, obviously we talked about how admired he was for his conduct during the Second World War. Um, he also was really harsh on the Indians when they wanted home rule, the Indian people. And so that's something that's not looked on as fondly because he, he wanted to keep the empire. And basically the empire fell apart, you know, obviously in the late 1950s and the 1960s. And people got self-determination, which was a great thing. So like every historical figure, there's a bit of great and there's a bit of bad. But I mean, that's kind of, I think how we all are, except maybe not to the, ex- not, not to this extent. If we're not as in control of many people, uh, not to that yeah. extent. So, but the thing is, Winston Churchill, when he delivered a speech, he inspired people and he inspired them to stay strong 
against the the power of the Nazis. And when your when your homes are being bombed every night, and there's a certain time you got to turn all the lights on mm. because your homes are being bombed, and you think about it, you think about lying the witch in the wardrobe. You know, you think about those kids were sent to the countryside so they would not be in London during the Blitz, during the German bombing that would happen nightly. And I mean, none of us had to live through something like that. Probably almost anybody listening to this podcast, unless they were in some kind of refugee situation, never had to deal with a situation like that. And so the fact that he helped people stand strong in the face of that and eventually overcome that is, I think, why people named him the greatest Briton of all time in 2002. And it's got that legendary kind of thing. It's, he's got that, uh, that feeling of, of greatness and being around greatness that was, you know, contagious. And I think where the song for this week, we talk about the song, In No Place Like Home, like the, the lead character wants to get the hell out of where he is. Yes. And, and, and the idea is that he's reaching for, there's got to be someplace better than this. You know, I, I don't belong here. I probably belong with somebody like I, Winston Churchill or Leonardo da Vinci or in these times of greatness like I'd rather be there I mean that, that's the kind of place where you envision yourself you don't envision yourself where you are and that the whole point of the song is you're where you're supposed to be and that's the point so here's Sunspot with No Place Like Home I was looking for any kind of way out I've been planning since the day that I was born I took a map, threw a dart and hit the target Anywhere but here was a better place to be for me A better place to be for me I am the puzzle that is missing lots of pieces I am the paint by numbers that don't all add up I am the Christmas gift with batteries not included I am the greatest book you've ever read Who's ending sucks
For listening to today's episode, you can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know who makes me feel like I'm at home, Wendy? Who would that be, Mike? That's our Patreon community. Oh my gosh, that is our home, actually. Yes, it is. And we love hanging out with everybody, usually from our homes. But the thing is, the Patreon community are the people who make the See You on the Other Side podcast extra great. Yeah. Agreed. So we, number one, we want to thank them for being contributors uh, every month. And we need to shout out to Dr. Ned. Special thanks, Ned, for pledging at the level where you get your own shout out. And we truly do appreciate your friendship, your support, and your being there for everything, really. Absolutely. And so if you guys are interested in being part of that community where we talk back and forth, we get involved in monthly hangouts, we're planning things like movie nights and stuff, then make sure you check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Happy Thanksgiving. I have done nothing. Is there a God? So everybody put this in your head. Winston Churchill buck naked in the bathtub, drinking a scotch, smoking a cigar. Maybe there's bubbles.